I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Who are you going to tell me about? I'm going to talk about Mary Church Terrell, who is a D.C. history legend and an early civil rights activist. So like your homeland. I am so excited to know more about her. I've discovered in doing this research that I walked by the school she worked at at least two or time, two or three times a week when I was in D.C. the last time. Oh, wow. I had no idea. So I'm really, really excited to know more about her. Okay. Um, so Mary Church was born in 1863. In Memphis, Tennessee. Mm. She's the daughter of freed slaves who have mixed racial ancestry. In Tennessee? In Tennessee during the Civil War. So they were freed Freed, just? I believe so. Although it's possible Memphis has a fairly strong history of having like a free black community. In addition to obviously the sort of long slave history that's there. Not a place you'd want to be though. Um, No, but after the war during Reconstruction... Memphis becomes this huge hub, like this major African-American community develops there. Um, And her father, Robert, and her mother, Louisa, are both business people. So Mm. her mom owns a hair salon that's focused on African-American hair at a time when very few women own their own business. Um, And her father has a number of different business enterprises that make him one of the first African-American millionaires in the country. Mm -hmm. So very wealthy family, Mm -hmm. very well off. And because of that, they're able to send her to a private school in Ohio to get a first-class education. So she goes to Ohio, gets in through high school, and then ends up going to Oberlin College, which is one of the first integrated colleges in the country. Um, And she actually ends up being one of the first African-American women to get a bachelor's degree. And so here we are, 1880s, incredibly educated young woman. So what does she do? She does three things. Teaches at a university, at Wilberforce University for two years, then gets a master's degree. Whoa. Just because, you know? And she then likes goes, learning. She really does. Um, and then she goes and does the 19th century version of the Grand Tour. So she spends two years in Europe learning French, Italian, and German. Can you explain what the Grand Tour is? Yeah. So it's this um, tradition that dates back to European aristocracy where young men, after they finish their education, would go spend a couple of years traveling Europe, seeing mm-hmm. the great sights, learning some languages, just getting cultured and meeting people. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the U.S. in the 19th century, it's a sort of similar idea where you go to Europe either to pursue graduate education mm-hmm. or to see the same sort of cultural sights, learn the languages. Is male-centric? I feel like women went as it's well. It's generally pretty male-centric, but mm-hmm. over the course of the 19th century, it increasingly become something that educated women do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chaperoned. Could, of course chaperoned. Yes. Oftentimes in sort of organized groups with some friends. Yeah. Um, and it's the kind of thing where, especially college-educated women, as that becomes more common in the latter half of the century, mm-hmm. it's something they'll do after their college education. Have you ever seen Room with a View? I have not. It's all about her going on tour. Really? Yeah, and she goes with this really fuddy-duddy cousin who, yeah. But it's it's the most list. Edwardian movie you've ever seen. I don't recommend it. I mean, they did a really good job, but like the subject matter, I don't think really helps. You're not super interested 20. in just like seeing some like wealthy young women walking around Europe. No, I mean, there's more going on in the movie, in the book, you know. But it is just if you 
if you are a nerd and you're like, what was life like then? If you want a solid like 1910s version of the world, man, Room with a View is, you're like, wow, I'm so glad I live now. <laughs> That's what I'll say. <laughs> but yeah, it, Lucy, the heroine, is, is on a tour of Italy with her cousin, just to go with her cousin. Of course. And it's all about, I think it's all about her taking in the sights and being educated about the Roman classics and yes. paintings and sculpture and Which is very architecture m- and the countryside. and yeah. Which is very much the point. And right. so that's what Mary goes off and does. That's a long tradition of such. Exactly. But still, that's quite an achievement for Quite an achievement, especially like, not particularly common for African Americans no. to have this opportunity. No. So she does it, makes the most of it. And then when she gets back to the U.S. in 1888... She moves to Washington, D.C. and begins teaching at the M Street School, which is one of the first college preparatory high schools for African-Americans in the country. Wow. Um, D.C. at this time has a huge African-American population. Mm-hmm. It's something about the city's history that I feel like doesn't get talked about as much as it should. But D.C. is one of the most heavily African-American cities in the country and has been for a really long time and continues to be through most of the 20th century. I have only heard... <laughs> About DC, um, oh, what's the word? Uh, demographics mm-hmm. in terms of how, what a discrepancy it is that they're nearest to the wealth of the country. Yes. In terms of like national, and yet the city struggles. Yes. In a way that's, I don't know. I'm also hearing through. Yeah, no, it definitely, it's, I mean, it's also one of the most segregated cities in the yes. country. Yeah. Um, and it's one, at least in the last couple it's, of decades, yeah. mm-hmm. that gentrification has been an mm-hmm. incredibly huge issue. It's one of the few cities that is getting whiter um, since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And that's because the African-American communities there are being displaced by young, wealthy, white professionals who are moving into the city Trying to work to, mm-hmm. in government, nonprofits, things like that. Yeah. So it's not great. Interesting. Yeah. But at this point, the city has a really robust african-american community yeah um it is also one of the it's one of the northernmost southern cities if that makes sense yep so the way dc is run is just like a southern city would be run so in short incredibly segregated yeah separate systems for african-americans it's hard right on that line isn't it it really is yeah and so she goes and she's working in the um the black school district in dc which Mm -hmm. is entirely separate from the white school district in dc teaching at this high school Mm -hmm. and while she's there she meets her husband. Mm-hmm. Husband is named Heberton, Herberton, Terrell. Herb. Um, who is Herb. going to become the first African-American municipal judge in Washington, D.C. Go Herb. But at this point is a teacher in the languages department with her, um, teaching Latin. Wait, he became the first municipal judge? The first African-American in... municipal judge in D.C. How'd that work during segregation? That's a great question. I don't actually have the answer to that. Yeah. I um, wonder how that worked. I'm imagining because so they end up Do having... you only take African-American cases. That doesn't seem. I don't think so. Right. I think it's probably post because they end up having a really long career. The two yeah. of them okay. um, into the 40s and 50s. OK. So I would imagine so it might be something later to... on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't I don't actually know. I was hmm. more focused on her. OK. That's um, fine. Yeah. Um, That's a great excuse, Michael. <laughs> OK. Uh, but the so they get married in 1891. They have one daughter and they adopt a second. Oh, so cool. lots of women in the house. Um, they adopt a daughter. They adopt a daughter. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then in 1892, one of Mary's oldest friends named Thomas Moss is lynched in Memphis oh, um, because some of his white neighbors thought that his business was competing with theirs. 
And this is the event that really... Wait, I'm sorry. Aren't we a capitalist country? Isn't that what we just live and breathe for? Free mm. market? Competition? One would think. Until I'm until I'm mad. And it's not allowed anymore. Mm-hmm. But the... Maybe have a better business, you jerkwad. Yeah. Sorry. sorry. Uh, no, it, no, it's really... The 1890s is kind of this horrible period where the South is stepping out of all of the reconstruction policies after the Civil War. Yeah. And it's really the moment where the white supremacist policies start taking off. Yeah. There's this huge hysteria about black men allegedly attacking white women that leads to this huge outbreak of lynching and mob violence against African-American men in the South from the 1890s through the 19-teens and 1920s. Um, this is when Ida B. Wells starts um, really trying to publicize lynching in the South and get yeah. newspapers to cover it. Um, and Mary starts participating in that. Um, so she w- works with Ida B. Wells on some of those campaigns. Um, she basically becomes a journalist, and so she's writing for all of these publications she writes for the washington post she writes for african-american newspapers in baltimore and new york city and is really focused on this big central issue which is lynching and anti-lynching activism i don't know i don't know enough about ida b wells at all i think we should do an episode we should do about one her. her yeah She's hold really on i'm cool. writing it down here we go um, keep going but this is the kind of work that mary is going to end up doing for the next 60 years of her career um and in terms of approaches to civil rights activism at this point there's sort of two big camps in the african-american community um there's those who think that the best way to tackle the issue is by educating a black middle class who will sort of raise up the entire community together yeah um or there's and there's a group that thinks that some sort of compromise or sort of participating in the white power structures is the best way to get equality and there's arguments being made on both sides um burger t washington is sort of like the prototypical compromise viewpoint and Mm -hmm. web du bois is sort of the prototypical sort of pull everyone up together Mm. um and she ends up working with both of them sort of collaborates i was just gonna say do all of it (laughs) yes exactly and that's kind of the approach mary takes which i think is really great yeah um she also befriends frederick Douglass. um who, doesn't, who passes away in 1895, but before his death, they become really close friends. Um, and she actually credits him with her decision to pursue activism. Because mm-hmm. after she has her kid, um, she's kind of like, well, I really enjoy being a mother. I think I'm probably going to step away from public life. I think I'm just going to basically be a stay-at-home mom. And Douglas is like, no, you are way too talented. You are way too good at what you do. Like, do both. Bring her with you. Um, and that's what, so that's what she ends up doing. Does she? Um, she, her daughter is I also like, feel like really active in her life, but she keeps being incredibly active. I also find this, to, I'm just thinking of this, solidifying this thought right now, but I've had it before where I think, I hope the future of uh, this whole modern take on motherhood and work, I think it's, it's up to you and it's your choice, but I do think there's still this like, this new postmodern feminist thing of just like, well, you do have to choose. Like having it all is also like problematic and and mean and not. You can't not, win. You can't. There's no good. There's no good choice. And I think it has to do with the fundamental misunderstanding of like what spaces people are allowed in. And I think there's problems to be had with what I'm about to say. But at the same time, just bring your baby to work. Like, get over it. Like, why do babies not get to be at work? 
oh, because they distract me, and oh, because they didn't. Well, babies are a part of the world, okay? And having them segregated to only be in their nurseries, and the lady takes care of them in that space, and that's where that should be. Now, am I saying there's problems with having your baby as you're, like, operating on a person? Yes, I agree. But I, for one, as a woman patient, if I went into my doctor's office and she had her baby on her hip, I would kind of be okay with that. Yeah. And I would think that would be cool. And I think, I hope that's where we're going. So hearing that she took her daughter with her, like, take your daughter to work day shouldn't be one day. No, it should be every day. Bring that kiddo in. Teach that kid how to be in public places. Teach that kid how to interact with groups. Don't take them into every meeting because that's not, that's probably not appropriate. But at the same time. They, right. I think your idea that like they don't have to be pushed off separated. into one particular space. Separated. There can be that's more... the home life. But that's a prescribed patriarchal view of the world where women are in public places. Yes. But now we are. So if we are the caregivers or thought of as caregivers and dads should be able to just take their baby into work too i'm just saying all of it yeah that line all should of it. be so much more fluid yes like we don't need a really hard especially when they're so little and they're sleeping all the time that's oh. the thing it's like a it's one-year-old like everybody's blood baby. pressure goes down because you hold a baby can you ma- oh god it'd be so great yeah i don't disagree. inherent problems i'm not gonna deny that but but there are inherent problems the way we do it now we're so almost we there well. with like daycares at work it's almost you know yeah i get it we're working on it. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Say yeah. tangent. That's a great tangent. So Mary brought her kid to work. So Mary, yeah, not necessarily all the time, but definitely it was like a very active part of her life. Great. Um, and so the first thing Mary does is in 1896, she helps bring together two groups of African-American women and combines them and forms the National Association of Colored Women. She becomes its first president. And the motto for this organization is lifting as we climb. And it's from this idea of sort of mutual support all rising together, mm-hmm. working to make sure that the whole community can kind of improve itself and improve its lot together. Um, and so they take this mission really seriously in terms of like elevating the communities they're serving. Um, so they open orphanages, nurseries, kindergartens, things that, like we were saying, that women are doing this kind of work and it's pulling them away from the public sphere for things that they might otherwise be contributing or it's just like a lot of unpaid labor that women are expected to do. Mm. And so they try to do as much as they can to support them. Mary goes out and campaigns. She writes speeches. She's writing for publications about this. Um, And she's working with both African-American and white feminist organizations Mm -hmm. to try to promote these ideas. And this is, of course, something where, like, these organizations are very separate at this point. You sort of have, like, your white feminists, black feminist groups. And, of course, because everyone is still super racist, none of the white organizations are really willing to let black women fully participate right. it's the moment where in a lot of suffrage marches you have the white suffragettes marching in front and then yeah. all of the african-american chapters are it's made like to march the founding the of the country right and it's like most of american history it's like every progressive moment <laughs> exactly it's a it's a victory for white people first and then, and then maybe everyone else. everyone else will be eventually and white led. women first and then everybody else yeah. And, yeah um and so that's something where mary really focuses on writing and talking about the experience of black women Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly in the suffrage movement. So she becomes really active in that movement as well. Um, and at a time when most mainstream suffrage organizations are all white and only focused on getting the vote for white women, um, she is both campaigning outside of those organizations to make sure that black women are included and participating inside them to make sure that the voice of black women is included in these organizations. Yeah. Um, she is a really active participant in the National Women's Party, which is sort of the more radical 
of the suffrage organizations. Um, mm-hmm. She spends a fair amount of time picketing outside of the White House. If you've seen those great images of suffragettes with their old school picket signs mm-hmm. outside in front of the White House, she's participating in that. And in Women's 19- March 1.0. Exactly. Hmm. Um, and in 19- Did they leave all their signs there? Like, like oh, 2017 just, like, walk did? by and pick them up? Mm. Mm. I don't know. That's a, I, that's a question of like protest logistics that I've never thought about. I did sort of love but, like that. old school protests. Like did they just like No, you keep it. You need it more than me. <laughs> in case you need a reminder <laughs> of what you're doing wrong. Yes. Wrote it in big block letters for you. Hard to miss. Yeah. Votes for women. Not um, hard. Not hard. You'd think. Yeah. You'd you really would think. think you would. Um, and then as part of this work in 1904, she participates in the International Congress of Women in Berlin. Um, she's the only black woman there, period. Um, and she mic drops big time by giving her speech in German. Pre-microphone. And then so in I'm French, impressed by that. And then in English. I'm sorry, what? So she gives the speech in three different languages because she can speak four different languages. I don't know why Italian doesn't get in there. But she gives the speech in German, in French, and in English. Oh, my God. And then just like drops the mic and walks In away. case you didn't know what I was saying the first time. Let me repeat it to you. Twice. Let me speak all these Eurocentric languages to you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm pretty impressed with her. I love that. Um, and at the same time that she's doing all of this activism, she's also appointed to the D.C. school board mm-hmm. in 1895, which makes her the first black woman appointed to a school board of a major city in the United States. Nice. Which is really cool. That's her jam, man. Um, and she works for a decade um, trying to get more congressional funding for schools because D.C. is all through federal appropriations, so you have to convince Congress to pay for things. Mm, um, I bet that's a great... It goes really well. It's still, like, a huge, huge problem in D.C. Um, Congress doesn't like to pay for education. Congress doesn't like to pay for anything, and D.C. is <laughs> uh, significant. Sorry. Gonna, I'm going to not say that. I think they like to spend things on... Yeah, no, they yeah. like. We're, we're a big fan of buying bombs. I think both sides would say we spend stuff very easily. Yes. I think the right yeah. says we spend stuff on nonsense like arts education and, and welfare and healthcare, and then the left says we buy bombs like they're going out of style mm-hmm. so um but ironically i think congress spends plenty of money right just not on the things we want them to spend it on or well, at least that i you and would i like them yeah to spend i would on. agree with that um and so she's working to advocate for african-american students in the district she's working to help the administration of the black district in dc mm-hmm. um and at the same time it's like running these national organizations. Um, busy she's bee. a very busy, busy person. And then in 1909, she gets busier. Um, so in 1909... Uh, she's what, 50-something? Uh, she would 63, be, you said, right? Uh, yeah, ni- 1863. So she is getting up there. Um, but she is then one of two African-American women to sign the call, which is the document that becomes the founding charter for the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, yes. the other one being Ida B. Wells. Um, and helps organize that organization as well. Um, and this is a time when a lot of people are afraid to join the organization because obviously there's a pretty big backlash mm-hmm. against any African-American organizing, and especially because the NAACP is an integrated organization. Um, I did not know this. I didn't either. This was one of the more fascinating things. And I think there's a lot to unpack here in that like a lot of the early work is done by like white and white Jewish activists in addition to African-American activists, but it's the first major integrated civil rights organization in the country um and what about, a great thing to be the first at i think it, i think it's really cool i think if we had more time to dig into it there's some like problematic things about like how some of the members go about it but i think I overall it's just like a really important thing to show that like not all white people are super racist 
most of them at this point are. Oh, but not 100%. everyone. Um, and it's one of the things where people respond really, really aggressively to it, in part because it is integrated. So one of the early board members, when he's traveling in Texas, gets assaulted. Um, and so it's the kind of thing where people are kind of afraid to join the organization. Yeah. And Mary's just like, nope, sign me up. We're mm-hmm. going to make this work. Mm-hmm. Because that's the kind of person that she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's doing a bunch of other stuff at the same time that, like, I really wanted to dig into. And there's just, like, isn't enough time. Yeah. But just to list them off really quickly. Uh, when World War One comes to a close, she is a delegate to the International Peace Conference. That Sweet. helps set that up. Um, she founds the Delta Sigma Theta sorority at Howard University in 1913. Huge. Um, which is now the largest predominantly African-American sorority in the world. Um, and in 1940, she publishes an autobiography entitled A Colored Woman in a White World. Ooh. Which I, I have not read yet, but it's on my list. Yeah, that sounds I'm good. Because I'm sure it's fascinating. And that's written around that time? Yeah, so written in the 1930s and then published Huge. in 1940. Oh, that yeah. would be good. I, I, it's, I Why doesn't she get a movie? Honestly, Does she have a movie? I couldn't find anything. Until <laughs> you're like, I'm going to read the book. I'm like, where's my film? But I would really like... Can you do it in like two hours? <laughs> like dramatically and entertain? Can I eat popcorn during it? Is that cool? So lazy. I think you could manage a really good film or even a miniseries with yeah, Mary. Yeah, a nice HBO special. Yeah. You know, two-parter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's got all this activism. Mm-hmm. 1940. She's getting a little up there. Yeah, you she's think, like, yeah. She could retire, right? Heading like, into her 80s. Mm-hmm. Most of us, I think, like, look to her 80s and like, not the now's cool a good people. time to like step away. The cool people keep going. Yeah. They no. rage. Mary is going to keep going. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of a backdrop on this. So in 1896, in addition to founding the National Association of Colored Women, Mary also helps found the National Association of College Women, which later becomes the National Association of University Women. Now this, to be clear, is not the American Association of University Women which is sort of the major... When a lot we of think, associations, right? A lot of associations. So the American Association is founded as an all-white organization for female college and university alumni. Ugh. And it's meant to be an advocate for women in higher education, but for white women in higher yep. education. And so the National Association is founded to promote everyone, everyone else. Because everyone's great? Yeah. Cool. Um, and so it's, it's still working to this day to promote and encourage... Um, traditionally underrepresented minority and low-income college students and to support them sweet amazing organization highly suggest looking into it um but the american association stays segregated Mm. so in 1949 mary sues the washington dc chapter to be admitted because they refuse to admit her and wins the lawsuit and gets the entire organization desegregated she is girl (laughs) jeez just because she's got the time on her hands. Ugh. While she is doing this, she's also working on integrating restaurants in D.C. So in 1950, when she is almost 90, um, she participates in sort of the first push to desegregate restaurants in D.C. Um, as with the rest of the South in the 1890s, D.C. had a formalized system of segregation laws put in place that sort of remain in effect through the 1950s, um, and particularly very strict rules about blacks and whites eating together. I'm going, I just, what? it's a sandwich. Like, it's like the French lady in the pants. It's just pants. Well, Why is it so, I mean, it's such a big deal. It's such you, a hill to die on. Well, because if you sit next to someone and eat a sandwich with them, you realize they're a person. And if you realize they're a person, it's a lot harder to be horribly like, racist oh, to them. They like turkey? My mind is blown. I just, it's, it's so, 
laughable. But at the same now. time, it's like so deeply insidious because you're like, they realize what's going on that yes. if you just keep people apart and keep feeding yes. them these stories, it's so easy to dehumanize Yes, them. and it's so easy to give the quote unquote other like less. Yeah. Because they don't see what they're... Exactly. Yeah, once they have to be served the same thing by the same person. Yeah. Yeah. It just dominoes. Um, so Mary and Ugh. four other people... Walk into Thompson's restaurant one day. Oh my god, she's like 90? Yep. Walking into the restaurant. I'm worried again. Demands to be served. They refuse her service. Mm. Um, Does she ask in French? And that confuses them? Oh, I wish. <laughs> that, see, if we're going to make a movie. Pardonne-moi. That's how the scene goes. Um, oh, and she's like, wait, let me try German. Mm. And so they get refused service. They're refused service? So they were refused service. They sue the restaurant. Mm-hmm. It takes about three years for the case to wind its way through the courts. But while they're waiting, they organize pickets, boycotts, and sit-ins at restaurants across the district. Mm-hmm. And then in 1953, court comes down on their side. Mm-hmm. Restaurant segregation is illegal, mm-hmm. and all of the restaurants in D.C. are integrated. Is that because the restaurant didn't say for religious reasons, I cannot serve you? Oh, we should not get into Too that topical? right now. topical? Sorry. <laughs> Let's keep going. Uh, so we, here we have Mary <laughs> in her late 80s. Knocking down not one but two major segregated systems. Yeah, not a bad, not a bad work for you know your eighth decade. More than on the I planet. did today for sure. Yeah, um, and so Mary is going to pass away in July of 1954, just a few months Dang. after the Brown versus Board decision is passed down. She is 91. Go girl. Um, there is now an elementary school named after her in DC. I bet um, she loves that, and she is one of. 12 civil rights pioneers who were recognized on a series of commemorative stamps issued in 2009. Oh, sweet. So I love stamps. a stamp. Yeah. Um, and I like I, that a school's named after her. Let's yeah. make all the Robert E. Lee schools her instead. I'm not That'd be good, to that. right? Yeah. Um, and there's also a junior high school named after or her. Or not even husband. Robert E. Lee. I, Andrew Jackson. He's one I don't care for. I'm, there's a whole list of them that I'm like, we should probably get rid of those. Let's put her on the point. 20 instead. Did we? It, is Harriet Tubman going to be on the twenty next? Is okay. Do you want to talk about on? all of that? I don't. So I, they said, let's take, let's put, a, let's put a lady on the twenty. Who should it be? Okay, everybody, vote on it. Tubman gets number one. Great. Oh well, you know, maybe not the twenty. Let's put her on a ten instead. And then Hamilton happened, mm-hmm. and now they're like, crap. Hamilton's famous now. We can't get rid of him, even though a ten is technically used less than a right. twenty, which is so problematic. So you're saying, I'm sure the the museum for Andrew Jackson was very pissed because it's is really, it, nice. is he on the 10? Is that, he's on the 20. Jackson's on the 20. Jackson's on Hamilton's the on the 10. Anyway, it was this whole thing of like, okay, so I think the last time I heard about it is she's going to be on half of the new ones. <laughs> so she's not even going to like directly replace. We're going to maybe give you less dollar bill value and put you on only half the time. So if that's not indicative of the female experience as an African-American woman, I don't know what it is. Take half and only half the time. Cool? Is that cool with you? Great. Great. We fixed it. We're going to keep the racist, if that's all right. The racist slave owner, he's going to stick around. Cool? Great. Oh, man. Never mind the other slaveholders on the one and the quarter, but general. So we're going to keep it. Sorry. Anyway, I don't know where it landed now. I haven't seen her yet. I haven't either. I still see still... old hickory on all my 20s, which are not very many. So <laughs> whatever. We're all, she should be on every credit card instead. How about yes, that? Please. Put her on all the credit cards. Put her and Sojourner Truth. All of them. Yes, please. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, so I was just like 
like I was saying, super excited to know more about her because I spent four years in D.C. for college and really felt like I didn't know a lot about the city's history. Yeah. Um, and it has such an amazing, rich African-American history that most of us who, like, show up and live there for a couple of years, yeah. like, white young professionals don't ever learn about. Yeah. Um, and in D.C. is, like, having new implications, like, the gentrification of African-American neighborhoods is forcing people who've lived there for decades yeah, out. She's a and it's founding participant. Yeah. Of that and especially because like the, the school that she's working at in Northeast DC is like one of these early pioneers of like, we're going to get African-American students to college. Nice. It's just like such a huge thing. Cause she saw how much it did for her. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Sort of paying it forward in a lot of ways that I think is really, That's so really great. Cool. I love her. Yeah. I'm going to say that about everybody. I feel like. So we do some questionable ladies, which is going to happen. Oh, we're going to get there. But at but the moment, it's nice. For now, I love her. She's amazing. And no child marriage again? No child marriage. Oh my marriage. God, we're on a streak. Age appropriate wedding. I'm going to ruin it. Okay. Anyway, should we take a break? I think let's take a break. Great. All right, Michael, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to tell you about a lady named, bear with me. I'm going to do a lady named. Huda al-Sharawi, or we're going to call Huda, or Hoda, is a typical name. She's okay. Egyptian. Very cool. Uh, she's Muslim. And her story starts in Egypt in 1879, June 23rd, if we're counting. June 23rd. This is going to be a really ignorant question. Mm. Is Egypt still a British? It's not yet. Not yet. Nope. It actually becomes... We're going to talk about it. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. I think awesome. it's 1882. Britain gets involved a little bit. Okay. But we'll talk about it. Um, 1879, she's born into a very wealthy family in Egypt. Her dad is quite quite the gentleman. Uh, she grows up in the harem system. Now, when I say harem, feel free to answer what you think a harem is. I've got a particular image. Yeah. Like Lots of... A sultan with a bunch of wives in a room. Yep. That's and they're all exactly like it. weirdly bathing at the same time. Yes. So for some reason, always, always bathing. Always bathing. There's always a pool and they're all just lounging on chairs, right? Yes. There's a fan. I'm going to take it though. That's not exactly what... Not 100% accurate. While there is some like elements of truth about it, it's definitely a westernized view of what was going on. Unsurprising. Like people would come into these, uh, what we call the Middle Eastern countries and be like, oh... All your women live in separate places. Is that because you have so many wives? Now I'm going to say multiple uh, polygamy is occurring. That is a true thing. Men did have multiple wives. They had uh, like first wives and then second wives or concubines is sometimes used interchangeably. Um, there is also monogamy that exists. It sort of depends on the marriage contract of the family. So you could negotiate a monogamous relationship for your child or... You could be the second wife and like go in fine. And anyway, harems in general are the women only rooms within the home. So there's a home, there's like in her particular home, there was a courtyard in the middle. And then there was very designated gender lines of where the women would be. And men were not allowed in those spaces unless they were part of the family. So like the husband or the main head of the house and then the, the male children would maybe be allowed in the harem at times, but then they aged out and then would move on. Uh, there's a tradition of like, you would only be allowed to speak to men from behind a screen. There's a very gendered separation, mm -hmm. not only in society, but within the, the home. home. Um, why that happens is, I'm sure, many reasons of just cultural 
progression of societal norms, but this is the home she's born into. She has two mothers. She has the mother that gave birth to her, and then she has the first wife of her father, who is her other... She considers another mother. She calls her first mother or something like that. Um, women in general are seen as weak and in need of protection, which is why this system sort of thrives. So not only would you have them segregated in this way, but you would have eunuchs to protect them, which are castrated men, for lack of a better... So that's like... Uh thing that legitimately occurred yes to, like eunuchs were yes i believe she had eunuchs in her harem that were not only to escort you when you left the harem in the home but also to protect you when you were within it and that's i mean that's the way you would phrase it right it's like i need to keep my family safe and that seems nice but it's also a way to keep women inside right. it's, it's also to, a dual purpose it's also it's to subject the women to that kind of thing as well as to protect them it's always seen as protection first. Um, this, yeah, it's okay. I talked about wives, multiple wives. Uh, her father's name is Muhammad Sultan Pasha. He's the president of the first, uh, I'm sorry, he's the first president of the Egyptian Representative Council. So in this time of her childhood, Egypt is sort of heading towards, I think there's a, there's a royal family, but they're heading towards a representative government. Uh, so constitutional monarchy, maybe. Uh, yeah, that's. I'm a little, I'm a little fuzzy on it. Um, but Britain comes on in, like they do to, in 1882. Uh, solve some problems. I'm uh, assuming. They don't full out overtake, but they occupy. Is this Suez Canal related? Eventually, that's the okay. 50s. But that's, so you can see how long line. the history lasted for mm-hmm. sure. And Nasser comes into Egypt at the end of Huda's life. Hoda, I'm going to say Hoda. Uh, at the end of her life, Nasser is coming in, and Nasser is the reason of the Suez Canal, and okay. along with British issues and post-war problems of World War II. But anyway, uh, Britain comes in 1882, so she's still pretty young. Mm-hmm. Um, her younger brother is born in 1881, and she immediately is aware that he is treated differently, and by how drastically. There's tales of her in her memoir of how her mother would even... Her mothers would even kind of provoke that and prefer the brother and like put all of this kind of different loving attention upon the brother because he's uh, the son and he's going to help us and take care. And to a woman's view, to her mother's view, the son is the one that's going to help them as they age. Like he will take care of them. He is their provider, their protector and their everything. So there is like some investment on their part of like, yeah, they need to make sure he is good and kind and upholds their religious beliefs and is aware that he has responsibility back towards them because to their minds, you know, she's going to have her husband, but they're going to have him, especially since her father dies when she's only five. Oh, no. And so this gr- there's like clearly a power vacuum that occurs. Um, so the mothers become quite depressed and cleave to her for comfort as well as her brother and kind of maybe a little over controlling because there's this such contradiction like you have to provide um (laughs) kind of a privileged story but at some point in her childhood her brother gets a pony and she's like oh that's sweet i would love to go horseback riding may i get a pony and they're like no girls don't ride ponies (laughs) so she's like um that seems like yes because you know what a little girl always wants a freaking pony and they're just like no Girls don't ride them. Can you under- There's a whole history of women 
on horses that we won't go into right now. Everybody disagrees <laughs> with women riding horses. Um, it's very problematic. That's such a specific thing to not be okay with. It's a big deal. It's a big deal for everybody. That's... A stride, side saddle. Oh, what will you do? What do you wear? Oh, oh gosh. Right, George Sand has to wear pants pants. and get a permit from Parisian police. That's a lot of peas, but you know what I mean? It's it's an issue. Um, she is able to be tutored in her youth. Um, she does get some lessons initially side by side with her brother. They're learning the same things. And then at some point, the age occurs uh, where he is taken to go to school and to get this higher, more uh, dynamic education than she is. And she's relegated to learn the particular crafts that are prescribed to women. Now, that being said, she gets lessons on Turkish poetry, calligraphy. She does learn French. French is the language to learn mm-hmm. of this time. It's kind of seen as very educated to have your French. And she learns piano. She's also taught, this is, this is a weird thing. She's taught to memorize parts of the Quran. But she's not taught Arabic language, like written, is my understanding. So she didn't quite have comprehension of what she was learning to mm-hmm. then say out loud. That, from what I understand, is like not super uncommon. Really? Um, cause, because from what I understand about Islam, like the it being in Arabic is uh-huh. really, really important. And so everyone learns the Arabic, even if you because and even translate, if you don't understand Arabic. Yeah, because translating, there's a whole sort of issue about whether or not you can translate it, and mm-hmm. whether translation is, like, possible or valid, I think. Yeah. And in terms of, like, her family life, learning French was a conversational thing as well as a written thing. Yeah. And she uses that later in her life. But I don't understand, I guess I have a discrepancy of, like, what Egyptian people are speaking at this time. Mm. A little unclear on that, because there's this British influence, they're learning French in the classroom, but they're not taught Arabic. So I also just am ignorant of like how many dialects of language there are in the Middle East. Like I've, my ignorance is saying you would know Arabic as an Egyptian at this time, but that is clearly not true because she had this kind of, why am I learning the Quran and not knowing what it means? Yeah. That's I'm just supposed to say it. That seems false to me. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly don't know either. Yeah. She was told girls didn't need to know it. So that's always a good answer. Take on that girl and then keep on. Anyway. So at some point, she be- she says, I became depressed and began to neglect my studies, hating being a girl because it kept me from the education I sought. Later, being a female became a barrier between me and the freedom for which I yearned. Which is really nice to, you know, learn to hate yourself just out of the gate. It's yeah. always going to help you out later it's on. It's a great starting place. So this very formative experience happens where this poet comes to her home, Saida Khadija al-Maghribiya. She's a female poet. Uh, she is able to come and speak with the men in the house as if she is an equal. It's this odd thing again of these weird little blips of progression that happen where it's she's clearly literate. She's an artist. So she, maybe she gets away with a little more. Um, but Huda is kind of blown away that she's able to sit side by side with these men, talk to them and be perceived as an equal. And it is not a problem. It, she said, it convinced me that with learning, women could be the equals of men, if not surpass them. So she begins, this kind of motivates her. So she begins to like secretly buy books on the street from merchants. No, not on the street. Merchants would come to the doors mm-hmm. of homes. Women wouldn't necessarily leave to go shopping. They would come. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, women control most of the financial power in the home. They are the main consumer of the household goods because that's seen as keeping the home. So merchants would come. You would buy all your goods from them. So merchants would come with books, and she would be like, oh, uh, yeah, no, I can take care of that. And she'd buy all these books that she wanted to read and then hide them away. And then she also snuck into her father's study and took books without asking. Quite a big deal. She would also try and borrow her brother's books as much as she could when he would bring them home from school. Um, This is all great. She's in the harem exclusively without her brother by 11. And... uh, What's right around the corner, 13, what we all know now as the magical time to be married. Oh, no. Are we going to have another? Well, there's no father in the home. Her moms are like, we got to get this squared away. Well, who's been hanging around that we know that would be fine? How about a cousin? How about a cousin in his 40s? That seems great, doesn't it? I mean, he's probably got some, like, stable financial situation. Yeah, you know. You wouldn't want to marry, like, a 13-year-old. So, you know, and he's family. So it all is great. It's all great and very 19th century and terrible. So his name is Ali Sharawi. He's in his 40s. She kind of had this view of him as, like, this weird father figure. So it was very hard for her. Oh, that's... very much... She had to deal with that. Oh, that's so problematic. She had to deal with that on her own, for sure. Um, Not into it. She was not... She did it out of the reason most women get married when they're 13, which is that her family asked her to, and she fine. And her mother was able to do this kind of negotiation with the dowry and the, the contract that he had been living with this um, concubine second wife kind of status person. Ooh, sorry. It's so problematic. So he agrees that he will not continue this relationship, which like that poor woman uh, but her mother is only caring about her daughter. So she's like, you will live monogamously with my child. And that is understood. And he agrees to this contract that she will only, he will be her husband and she will be his only wife. Just like. For all time. Throwing the other wife under the bus. Kind, yeah. Which is unfortunate. Um, Huda doesn't really care. She would rather not do any of it. But she agrees. They get married. However, 15 months in. To this beautiful newlywed relationship. 13-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. uh, The concubine shows up pregnant. And so... The timeline on that, not great. Not great. So Hoda's like, cool, peace, I'm going home. And she leaves him and heads back home. Stays married, technically. And the the whole family is like, what? No. But she's like, "Mm, he broke the contract. I don't have to live with him. And they're like, ugh. They really just want her to go fix it. She doesn't want to. She spends the next seven years living basically as free a life as she has had at this point. Because they can't marry her off again. She's still technically married. Divorce laws are super complicated. Hmm. She doesn't really seek them out. So she's like, I'm just going to keep reading. So she continues to (laughs) teach herself and get a tutor. And she has a little more mobility at this point. Both culturally, it's it's loosening a little bit, but not great. So she goes to concerts. She travels a little bit. She meets uh, other foreign women who are of a class that she is similar to. So she's meeting these higher educated, um, wealthy women. And she sees a discrepancy between her country's treatment of women and theirs. Even though it's not great for anybody at this point, she still sees the kind of difference. But she also sees how much they have in common as women. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of... 
like a nice, amazing like, international feminist. Yeah. So movement. she meets Eugenie Lebrun, who was married to an Egyptian man, but she brings all these kind of French European traditions to her home. And one of these traditions is a weekly salon. And a hmm. salon is a, is a meeting of women traditionally. Oh, uh, you think of like a tea and crumpets and a little educational speech. So you'd have like themed salons where someone would come in and give a lecture. Or you'd learn a new skill or you would pass the time. And why don't we do that anymore? That It's like, called book club, Michael. Why? That's like, <laughs> I have one. Do you not have one? I don't have one. I guess. Anyway, tea and crumpets is a little vague. I mean, there's that aspect of it in terms of Victorian times, you know, something a little stronger than something. But this is definitely an educational salon. Eugenie is very much about getting the Egyptian women together and creating a community. It's also like, how else do you get female friends when you're not allowed out of your house? So, <laughs> and as we all know, female friendships are the bomb. So they discuss politics, education. They talk about ch- child rearing. I mean, they, they go for broke. It becomes a weekly thing. She is so motivated by this sort of personal learning and grows amazingly uh 1900 she's in she's now properly in her 20s ali comes back finally he's like hey we gotta we got we're still married we gotta make this work i would like you to be my wife she's like her family is like please go live with your husband that you've been married to for seven years this is a embarrassment to the family what would your father say like all of that stuff so she's like fine i'll go back um they end up actually from this point on having a very good marriage. Uh, there's some kind of meet in the middle that happens. That's such a delightful change from what yes, we normally. Yes, I know. Yeah, he he to his credit is pretty progressive for this time and comes back and seeks to have a good relationship. Um, they have two children in 1903 and 1905, a daughter and a son. The daughter is very sickly as a baby, so for a second she has to kind of really invest in her daughter's life to kind of actually just get her out of danger so there's a little bit of a step back moment but she also is able to travel with her husband and she meets a french woman marguerite clement who lectures all over and huda asks her to come to egypt to speak to egyptian women about feminism and suffrage and all of this thing and her husband agrees to help her and actually helps get a space for this woman to come and speak at at a university so he's helping. He's an ally. Doing the cause. Um, women are now, like, with this idea of we're going to go educate, it's proper subject matter. It's nothing too radical. It's just for education and, and investment. It becomes a little more accepted in culture to have women leave the home and to gather in fe- female spaces. So in 1914, she forms the Intellectual Association of Egyptian Women. Um, Solid name, I'm assuming. Pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. They like to talk about things with their brains. Make thoughts and say them out loud. So Britain has been occupying and ruling Egypt for most of her life. Um, 1919, kind of aftermath of World War I, everybody's country kind of refocuses on itself. Empires are still there, but there's a little more rebuilding that needs to happen at home. So monarchies are going away uh democracy and communism are sort of starting to become more popular in more places and egypt is starting to feel that itself why are these british here what what do we need them for 
we would love to trade with them, but like we would like a say in our own country's future. Sounds like a reasonable ask. Radical. <laughs> Radical. The Wafti party is formed. Uh, her husband is one of the leaders of this party. It's sort of the radical nationalist party of the time. That's like, we should represent each other, not the British. Um, they start to peacefully protest and sometimes not peacefully protest the British rule. And she's like, cool, I'm going to get the women. You deal with the guys, I'll get the women. We need everybody. Like most revolutions, you need everybody when you're trying to be the underdog. So this particularly interesting protest happens March 16th, 1919, where she gets all these women out in the streets and they plan to have a march. And it's, I mean, it's rich, poor, it's, it's all this giant demographic. And what a sight to see in such a gendered specific place like Egypt, where seeing women in public is A, odd, and B, in mass, and C, political. It's quite the sight. I'm sensing a butt. No, no, it's great. Oh. Oh, um, okay. No, it's great. It ends fine. <laughs> at some point, I mean, I'm not sure how it ends, but at some point there is the British stop them from having to move. So they're like, okay, well, we won't move, but we're going to protest. And they just sit and look in the eyes of the British soldiers. And they're like, and they just stare them down for hours in the sun, just standing out in the Egyptian sun, wow. watching an army and being like, fine, we won't walk, but you're going to know that we're out here and we have an opinion and we aren't fans of you and we're not fans of you um so, uh, one gentleman writes the spouses from the finest families marched through the various quarters of cairo shouting long live freedom and liberty as the crowds th- thronged the pavements to applaud and cheer them on and women leaned out of windows and balconies you you uh, Yes, thank you. In jubilant support. It was a fantastic scene that stirred every heart. I'm not sure exactly what clinched it. Everybody's got to go home or whatever, but the women leave unharmed. Such a pleasant thing to hear when you're facing down the British army. So, due to the need to throw off the British, Egyptian men were a little more open to having women help them. So, it's sort of once they start getting their goals accomplished, it's nation first then we'll give you equal rights. But let's get free first, and then you're totally going to be equal partners in this. And the women are like, we will help you. Um, in the 1920s, she forms the Waftist Women's Central Committee. So it's the female version of the party that her husband is in charge of. And it's the actual first political organization for Egyptian women. Um, in 1922, she organizes a mass meeting of women at her home, and they agree to boycott British goods and withdraw all their money from British banks. And as I said before, commerce is pretty much directly controlled by women being the direct consumers. So when they decide to boycott British goods, it's effectively the entire crippling country the British economy in Egypt. Go figure. Super helpful. Um, it's also the... F- Islamic law at this time allows for women to own property and money in their own name. So there's a, quite a bit of assets that women have control of without having like, to seek permission from the men in their family. Like, we're going to take that mm-hmm. and we're going to leave mm-hmm. and take our money away from it. In 1922, her husband unfortunately passes away, oh. which is sad because in 1923, Egypt wins its independence. But Britain still has a little say, but it's definitely seen as a turning point. Um, in 1923... <laughs> Boom, she forms the Egyptian Feminist Union. She just, like, goes for it. Um, yes. She also 
now that she is uh, independent, she's kind of always had a career, but there's kind of this like unleashing of, cool, I'm going to do whatever I want now. Okay, great. So May, and also her, her nation has independence. So she sees this kind of outward view. And she goes to Rome in 1923 in May and attends the International Alliance of Women. And she sees all of these women and is motivated when she returns home to Cairo. And this is like the big deal that she's cited for from now on. So she's coming into Cairo on a train and there's, she has a following now. So wherever she goes, there's pretty much people there that want to like greet her, see her, especially women. Mm -hmm. And so she gets off this train and when going out in public places at this time, women were traditionally had the hijab of like covering your hair and covering most of your, you're very modestly dressed, but there was also a tradition of a complete veil. Like your face wouldn't be exposed at all. So she gets to Cairo. She's getting, everyone's there to see her. They're so excited. And she just, in front of everyone, just pops that veil off and doesn't wear it for the rest of her life. And it was huge. It's like the That's main so, thing yeah. you read about her, if you look her up, is the fact that she took this veil off. Not only did she take it off, she took it off in public. And she did it like consciously where the most people could see her. Because at a train station, it's not just her supporters. It's not like at a rally. It's, it's like Joe Schmo going to... Alexandria is going to see her take off a veil. Yeah. And by the end, by the next 10 years, it's the veil is virtually non-existent in public, worn by women. Still rarely, but it's definitely like a huge game changer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, that's so cool because that's something that's going on in Iran right now is a lot of women are using that as a symbol of protest against yeah. the government. Yeah, it's definitely is. It's just, it should be a choice, right? Yeah. That's what it is. If you want to wear it, great. You should wear it, but you should have the option. You shouldn't be prescribed. Seems like a, a dress code. A great way to approach just about anything. Yeah, you should have a choice. Go figure. Um, she's the. I mean, this effectively makes her both the figurehead and the actual fem head of the feminist movement in Egypt. Um, she continues to campaign for <laughs> go figure the minimum age of marriage to rise. Maybe she has some personal experience with that. Maybe. Uh, votes for women, restriction of polygamy, stricter divorce laws for men, education for women and girls. In 1925, women are granted compulsory education in Egypt. And by 1930, Egypt allows the first women into universities. So she does get to see some progress in her lifetime. She forms an opinion, or opinion. <laughs> she forms a <laughs> magazine, which uh, is called Les Égyptiennes. So French, so Egypt. Uh, and it becomes basically her mouthpiece of her. Uh, I don't like this term because it's usually used negatively, but for the feminist agenda. Of yes, which she, for the feminist agenda. She had one, and so she was going to use it. It takes on editorial tones, and she even goes so far as to call out the current prince of Egypt at the time who wanted women to kind of go back into the harem. And she just like... Just goes for it and just rails against him. They wanted to walk back this freedom that women had kind of gotten in this revolution and be like, like okay, let's go back. Thank you for your assistance. We got it now, ladies. Go on back home. And she just wasn't about it. So she used her little mouthpiece and let it rip. Uh, she continues to advocate for Egyptian women and women of the world. She forms an Arab feminist union in 1944. And... She also likes to cite her Islamic faith as being a reason to allow equal rights of women. She's mm -hmm. cite, because of her knowledge of the Quran at this point, she is able to cite 
Islamic teaching as a as a fundamental equality based religion, which is not something we hear about right now. Yeah, I was going to say that's definitely like not the at least my impression of the popular view of Mm-mm. Islam in the U.S. Go figure. Just, like... It's all up to interpretation. What? Yeah, I know. How about that? So. She represents Egypt at women's conferences all around the world. Um, she is a member and a vice president of the International Alliance of Women for Suffrage and Equal Citizenship and a founding president of, the, like I said, the Arab Feminist Union. She also receives honors. Uh, in the, she receives a Egyptian Honor Award in 1945. It's like the highest honor you can get as a citizen, but she's still not able to vote, which I find interesting. She passes away August 12th, 1947. Um, Equal rights were granted to women during this period, but really it's just education and work. But by 1956, the Constitution actually gave women the right to vote and run for election. Very important. So not too long after her, but still not within her lifetime, which is unfortunate. And eventually the Egyptian Feminist Union uh, name was changed to the Shirawi Society for Feminist Renaissance. For the feminist renaissance. That is a great and name. And during the Arab Spring, protesters would continually hold up her picture as like a sign of her major influence on bringing feminist issues to the forefront of progress in that area. And That's she's awesome. continually cited as a huge inspiration. Um, one quote that I have of hers are, Men have singled out women of outstanding merit and put them on a pedestal to avoid recognizing the capabilities of all women. She's dope. Yeah. No, I love that quote because I feel like that's such a constant issue that we've talked about is like Mm -hmm. you have this one amazing woman per checkbox, basically. Yeah. Like you're a great political woman. And it's just because she's special. Exactly. And then we don't have to change the rules because it's not a thing about women. No. Just this one person. She is so... What a genius or what a what a maverick. Yeah. Rather than like she saw it in her own childhood of just being separated, being othered, being uh, chosen second from her brother and how it affected her own. She had the sense of self to be like, and that is why I became like when she writes her memoirs later, that's why I was depressed because I hated myself for being a girl. And if you do that then of course someone will never succeed because they hate themselves. So why would you get out of the bed in the morning? Yeah. Nice Whereas like, oh, you like books, Shirley? Read all the books then. Go for it. You know what I mean? Internalized misogyny is great. It's really great. Let's make pants permits. <laughs> pants permits, uh, not allowed to go outside. Not for great. your protection. That's the other thing is seeing the woman as weak, fragile, and in need of help. Yeah, which is of course which is always very a very of- sweet. And we get it. And maybe sometimes. But just blanket rules like that never work out no. for anybody. Because it always comes from a place of it's not really we want to protect you. It's we want to keep you in a subordinate well, position. Well, it's just a happy, uh, it's a happy outcome. Is for it? some people. <laughs> for some men. For some people, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, who well, knows? Thank you so much. You're that welcome. Fascinating. Yeah, she's great. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.